At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We are back here on Post Wrestling. It's John Pollock and Wei Ting, and we are welcoming back a very popular guest. It's not great circumstances, but we're very lucky to have this person uh, part of the, the post-wrestling community at large. He is Dr. Alex Patel, who... Alex, when we announced that you were coming back, I, I won't lie, we got more of a response than we do for like a lot of like bigger names at times that we have on. So <laughs> you're, you've certainly carved out uh, your niche within the wrestling and MMA landscape over the past uh, couple of months because it's been a vital information that you've been pro- providing and a lot of questions people have. Thanks. Thanks. No, I'm, I'm glad to do it. Well, um, we did put up a, a thread on the forum. So I know Way is going to be going to a lot of those questions that a lot of our listeners have as well. But I want to just start off. It's the last time we spoke with you, I believe it was in May. And that may as well feel like five years ago by this point. But just in terms of the last time we did one of these uh, updates with you, what would you say just off the top of your head or some of your, your broad observations of the advancements that have been made and and where you feel um, the virus is in terms of how it's been contained, specific kind of to the area that, that you're monitoring here in the Toronto area? So it's definitely been a lot better here. Um, we've had far less cases. Uh, the Ontario caseload, uh, which looks at not just Toronto, but the, the province of Ontario, although most of the cases are, are still in the Toronto area, uh, is consistently sort of below 200 cases. And I think it was closer to, to 400 or, or so, or maybe even 500 when we last spoke. Uh, so that is uh, promising. We're seeing less numbers, even in the hospital, anecdotally. Uh, we had about 200 patients on ventilators back then. We're down to about 50 or so. In terms of treatment, uh, really the first and, and probably only promising therapy that, that's actually borne out a little bit is um, is dexamethasone, which you may have uh, read about, which uh, doesn't really help those with mild disease, but helps uh, tremendously in those that are sick on a ventilator like the patients I look after. So it's been something we've used. Um, so, you know, currently in terms of sort of active coronavirus cases, people that are, are still, you know, actively being treated, we're down to about one in our ICU where we were probably up to about 15 or so before. So definitely here uh locally it's it's been a lot better um you know obviously i can't say the same for what's going on down south which i'm sure will will comprise the bulk of what we talk about later i i wanted to ask you in particular alex how how you're feeling you know how how your staff was kind of coping with with it all um obviously i i would hope we are kind of like past the most stressful period of this whole thing at least you know in, in the toronto area but uh how are you doing uh, good, good. I mean, I think overall, when this first hit, there was a lot of concern from the staff about, uh, you know, would we have PPE? How effective would PPE be? And in general, that's been okay. Um, most staff have not contracted. I think we had maybe one uh, nurse in our ICU, and, and we're not exactly sure whether that was at work or in sort of a personal setting. But really, we didn't have large outbreaks. Most of us have been safe. And I think um, that's been, for us at least, the, the best part, because it's hard to look after people if you're worried about your own safety, obviously. So, uh, that's been reassuring. I think the stress load uh, has gotten better. You know, we weren't always used to wearing masks and, and sort of face shields or goggles at work. And now uh, we're getting more used to it, obviously, because we do it every day. So I think it's it's gotten a lot better. Um, just 
I guess we're just getting more acclimatized to the new sort of work environment. How have you viewed a lot of the, the coverage of the virus? Because I, I seem to see things that sometimes get conflated that, you know, there's obviously when we're talking about, you know, media as a whole, there's going to be misinformation that's out there. At the same time, this is a new virus that has never been tackled before. And therefore, something that may have been assumed a month ago may not have borne itself out. Like there is so much that you can speak of that is being learned on a daily basis that it's not always misinformation. Sometimes it's just updated information and certain theories are either proven or or disproven. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just uh, the last time we spoke, for instance, just to give you an example, we were talking about hydroxychloroquine and we were giving that. This was like a month ago and then, you know, remdesivir and now it's dexamethasone. So, I mean, these are, you know, therapies that are changing for this virus all the time. Um, I think the most important thing is uh, no matter what you read out there, no matter what you see, to keep in the back of your mind that nobody really knows. Mm -hmm. We don't know how this is going to go, right? Uh, We're only a few months into dealing with this virus. We don't know uh, whether it's going to come back. We don't know. Uh, what's going to be the long-term immunity from this. We have some ideas, but nobody really knows. So I think anything you're reading out there, you do have to take with a grain of salt. Uh, the only way we're going to know this is through the passage of time. So, you know, you try and get your, your news as best you can from reputable sources. Don't overreact to one article if you see somebody say this cures coronavirus. Um, you know, even when the dexamethasone article came out, uh, you know, you want to actually look at the scientific literature. If you don't know how to do that, have somebody... Uh, you know, who does uh, kind of review it, because um, otherwise you can just get caught up in a whirlwind of things that are going on. But just to keep in the back of your minds that really most of us don't exactly know how this is going to play out. And because of that, uh, the information is at best a a sort of educated guess. Several of the questions um, in our thread were asking for your opinion about not just perhaps, you know, information that's out there that might be dated come a month, but straight up like misinformation. That seems to be out there. Um, how have you managed to deal with it? And, and and really, how dangerous do you feel that that might be for, for the future of the pandemic? It can be dangerous. I mean, you have people that, you know, think, for instance, that you don't need a mask, maybe, or that, you know, such therapy works or such therapy doesn't work. Um, for instance, the biggest one I'll get around is, is intubation. I mean, uh, intubation is when you put people on a ventilator. Um, you know, there was some information out there that, oh, intubation will cause you to, to die. So we had patients in the ICU that were saying, oh, we don't want intubation. What they don't understand is, uh, you know, we don't intubate you unless you need it, right? So it's not that intubation causes death. It's that you were going to die anyway if we didn't intubate you. So this is kind of a last-ditch effort. So I, I, a lot of that kind of stuff I think people don't fully understand. And and if you read that and you you sort of think you do um, understand and you make decisions based on that, it can be problematic. Uh, you know, if you read something, I would encourage you just to ask somebody. I mean, if you're on the what forums, uh, uh, you can ask me uh, or you can ask any anybody that you know that's sort of more involved in this, because if you're going to make any kind of a decision based on what you read, you really have to be sure of what you're reading. Uh, we make decisions on, you know, buying the simplest things by reading seven reviews online before we do it. So something as serious as this, I think you, you just can't read one thing and assume that you know everything about it. And on that note, like, you know, um, are there specific, you know, trusted sites or resources that you would recommend for the common person just looking to make sure that, you know, they're getting good information? 
Yeah, John Hopkins has a great site. So John Hopkins goes over a lot of the coronavirus, uh, not just the U.S. perspective, but uh, it has news links and articles that they will review. So I, I think that's a good site just for the, the common person who wants to uh, review that uh, and sort of get up-to-date information about what's going on with the coronavirus more on a, a large scale. Obviously, some of the medical journals cover it, New England Journal of Medicine and, and JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. That's a bit trickier to follow if you're not a, a physician or researcher. But if you do see news links from those reputable journals, they're likely going to be a, a better quality than just a, a random thing you read. As I'm sure, you know, there, there's an overall sense of, you know, I, I think it's a combination. Like there are people that are are frustrated that it's, it's this many months. It's now the summer where people want to be getting out. They want to be interacting with people. I mean, um, from like uh, just your own perspective, Alex, like what are kind of, you know, if you are going to be getting together with with family, like there is going to be risk attached to any of this. Is there a certain uh, pre precautions that that you would recommend highly if you know families are getting together? If you're doing like backyard visits, uh, sidewalk visits <laughs> with people, I mean, where where patios. is kind of kind of yeah on, on patios as well? Like where where is like a step too far beyond the line in, in your estimation, or can you even like? draw a line in terms of people's risk that they're going to assume? I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to formally say. Uh, I think the most important thing is to keep a few things in mind. One is that obviously outdoors is going to be safer than indoors. Um, the virus outdoors is rarely transmitted unless you're, you're sort of touching something that you've coughed or sneezed on and somebody happens to touch it and touch their face. Whereas indoors, there's so much stuff that's touching. We don't know if when you sort of uh, sneeze or cough, whether that particles are being aerosolized that may stick around longer versus outdoors. So definitely outdoors is going to be safer. Um, I think if anybody is sick at all, uh, you know, with a fever, cough, shortness of breath, they, they really shouldn't come out because they're going to be the highest spreaders. If your own personal risk is higher for some reason, because you're either older, you have significant comorbidities or, or you're on medications that, that may suppress your immune system, you should stay away. And then you kind of look at it as uh, a sort of case-by-case -case basis. So depending on where you live, and I'm going to sort of say in our area, the caseload is dropping to the point where uh, it's less and less. So it's it's pretty uncommon that you're going to encounter a large number of people that have it. If everybody you know is relatively healthy, then um, you can meet up uh, probably uh, and be okay in an outdoor setting. You do want to observe some basic principles. So you try and keep two meters of distance or about six feet uh from people that are not immediately with you. Obviously, if it's, you know, your wife or you're sharing food at home, then it's not going to be any different outside. But if you're meeting new people or people that are not part of your immediate bubble, then try and keep about two meters of distance. Try not to share things that uh, are sort of high risk. So cutlery, for instance, or something like that, or plates, try and make sure everyone has their own and that you're not sharing things. Don't put a big salad bowl out and have everyone take from it. Instead, just you know, put out portions for people, right? So don't have common things that everyone is touching or a bag of chips or something like that. Uh, and when you are there, um, make sure you've had a little bit of distance between you. And certainly if you do feel that uh, it's getting too crowded, uh, then uh, it would be best to um, make sure that you're, you're not in those situations uh, if you can avoid it. So if you happen to go to a patio and they've got, you know, a reasonable amount of distance and it's not too crowded, that's going to be infinitely better than a, a very crammed patio where everyone is, is sort of shoulder to shoulder with everyone. Another thing that um, I guess is getting a lot of talk about right now is uh, the op op reopening of, of schools uh, later on this year. Um, we had a question about asking about your thoughts on whether or not you read the sick kids back to school mm -hmm, recommendations. Mm -hmm. 
And if so, uh, how do you feel about it? And just really the idea of schools reopening back in, in September, I mean. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I've definitely read the Sick Kids article. I've talked to a number of people that have written it. Um, the Sick Kids article, for those of you that don't know, basically advocated for the opening of schools. And Sick Kids is a hospital in Toronto, one of the leading uh, children's hospitals in the world, actually, uh, that had a number of pediatricians that weighed in on it. And the main arguments for opening school were that kids are generally re less at risk and that they spread the virus less. And this is based out of um, what was a meta-analysis, which in medical terms just means that somebody read a bunch of the articles out there and congregated that and published it. It was out of Sweden. Uh, and the argument was that there's a lot of benefit to having schools open uh, socially for kids and in terms of their learning. Now, some of that is true. Uh, for sure, uh, kids themselves are not at high risk of getting sick uh, as much as adults are. Uh, when they look at who kids get sick, so if they're vectors, so to speak, of the virus, generally it's their parents and other kids uh, who are, you know, usually if you have young kids, you're not going to be super old. Um, grandparents are often uh, not as affected just when they sort of trace some of these kids. And the number of kids that are swabbing for the virus is less. Now, I would caution you that we don't always swab kids for the virus. So I, I've done a lot of clinics now uh, where I've actually swabbed people to help out because we were short staff. And if kids come through, the, the act of putting that... Uh, sort of brush in their nose and swabbing is not something you can do for many children. So a lot of times we just don't swab the kids. We'll swab the parents and sort of assume that the kid's status is dependent on the parents. So that can be a little bit misleading. One of the concerning things, if you look at Israel, uh, Israel's stats dropped dramatically and then started to, to have a little bit of a rebound when they opened school. So there is a concern this could happen. I think the best thing is it's a little early to decide. I think schools is going to be more of a game time decision. You're going to have to wait until August rolls around towards the end to see where our caseload is. We've had no spikes, and I think you you can certainly try to open schools, trying to limit the number of kids in the classroom and, and try your best to keep them socially distanced as you can. You can't obviously have 30 kids in a class, but if you could reduce it and see what happens, basically. And you have to be fluid and willing to move that if the numbers do start to creep back up, that you um, make changes. But that's kind of the argument for the school. So I, th I think, you know, there is some benefit in, in, in doing it for sure. And there is some evidence out there that maybe it's a bit safer in kids than anyone else, but it's not without risk as, as was seen in Israel. One other thing that that's come up since the last time we talked to you, Alex, was another social issue. And that was, you know, all of the protests that we've seen in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And mm -hmm. just when you have seen those visuals of just such an enormous volume of people um, has that been alarming? And conversely, since it, this happened, so it's been happening for so many weeks at this point, has anything been learned from seeing these these large gatherings of people outdoors um, that, that we can take anything away from? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, I understand people's right to protest, obviously, and that was, uh, you know, quite an important issue. Um, it was a little bit concerning that, you know, people were out without masks and, and quite close to each other. And, you uh, unfortunately it is what it is even if you are outdoors although it's less risky if you are close to somebody that that risk is is certainly uh considerable if somebody has the virus uh it was a little concerning i think in the u.s to see what happened i don't think we have a great explanation for why some states uh had a spike in cases and some did it is it related to to some of these things and outdoor measures i assume in florida a lot of it is related to the lax sort of attitude to it right and people congregating even outdoors at the beach or or you know what have you so i do think some of this has definitely contributed to a, a, an increase in the cases that you're seeing in certain regions there's also a lag right like you're not going to have an event today and see something tomorrow that's not how it works you're going to take at least a week before you start seeing those numbers creep up what's the latest that you've heard about 
you know, the, the idea of reinfection and immunity. Um, you know, Kayla Braxton, of course, uh, has come out and said that she this was her second time testing positive for coronavirus. And there's it sprung some debate about, um, I guess, you know, whether or not that was even possible. As far as you know, uh, what, what is the latest on that? So, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, for anything in which you uh, get infected, the coronavirus is, is likely no different than most viruses. You do at least develop short-term immunity from antibodies, about three months. I don't know about Kayla Braxton's situation in particular, but I can tell you that using a swab that is positive again as a marker for reinfection has some problems. I have swabbed people who eight weeks after their initial infection are still swabbing positive. And mind you, they're not all positive. Sometimes they're negative, sometimes they're positive. You have to understand the test is a little operator dependent. Uh, and sometimes we think these people may just intermittently shed low re levels of the virus. So sometimes the test will pick it up as being positive. Sometimes the test won't. So just because you have the virus today and then two weeks later you swab negative, another two weeks later, you might swab positive. And it doesn't mean you got the virus again. It just means it's the initial infection. And it's just because there's low levels of it, sometimes it's detected, sometimes it's not, sometimes they don't get you know, as deep. So you have to really be with a bit of caution. I've seen this personally, so I can attest that this does happen. Uh, we have people in our ICU that are still positive eight weeks out that clearly don't have the virus because they don't have symptoms of it right now. So you have to be very cautious like that. Um, in order to demonstrate actual clearance of the virus is, is very difficult at this point. The antibody tests are not super well validated. Um, some of my colleagues in Europe have used them. We don't, uh, they didn't meet some of our test qualifications here. So it's very difficult to say. If you don't, if you're clear of the virus, then you develop sort of a cough later. I mean, it could be anything. And just because you swab positive doesn't mean you got the virus again. Now, could it happen? Um, we don't know, but we would think for, you know, at least about two to three months, you're going to have some degree of immunity. Could it come back later and you get it again, like influenza? That's the concern, right? That we're going to see uh, another form of the virus later that people who have had it can get. Maybe it's a bit milder than the first time, but that you could get it again. But right now I would say just because you have the virus, if you swab negative, don't think that your subsequent swabs uh, can't be positive because they could be, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have it again. Is there a discernible difference between the, the reliability of the nose swab versus the throat swab testing? No swab is probably more accurate if done correctly, um, is slightly more accurate. Um, the combination of nose swab, I mean, there are other tests that, such as if you take an endotracheal aspirate, that's probably more accurate or, or a CT scan can be quite accurate as well. But probably the nose swab, if done correctly, uh, if there's an, a paper out of Alberta that looks at this, is probably more accurate. Uh, but the test is a little more operator dependent. So if you have someone who's experienced in doing it, uh, to be honest with you, one of the ways is if you have the test done, it should draw a little bit of tears from your eyes. And if they've done that, then they've probably done a correct job of, of getting deep enough. Awesome. Um, now, uh, what 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 is sort of the latest on uh, like rapid testing that I've heard a lot about, um, and and how you know what's the accuracy rate or something like that, and how far are we from I suppose in instituting forms of those uh, maybe in a more kind of kind of common setting. Yeah, so we are down to about 24 hours or less on a lot of our tests in hospital now. And the accuracy seems to be on par about, you know, 70% or so on average with the other tests. Um, so those kind of tests that are available within about 24 hours are there. Some hospitals have moved to tests that are available within hours, so four hours. And the accuracy seems to be on par so far. So I, I do think we are getting better and better at detecting it. You know, we're not getting up to 90% accuracy on any of these tests just yet. Um, but they are of similar accuracy despite shorter uh, time to result. And what is that percentage? 
Probably around 70. I mean, it's difficult to say because it ranges from anywhere 60 to 80. But on average, we tend to look at it about 70%. A lot of times when you're hospitalized, if we think you have coronavirus uh, and you have a negative swab, we will uh, proceed with a CT scan uh, to look at your lungs or we'll repeat the swab, uh, again, just to increase the accuracy. Uh, for instance, UFC, I think, is doing four swabs if, if uh, Fight Island... Um, Whatever, five if you correct. include the they're doing one after the fight to get off the island to go home so in, t- in total it, it's five from the anchor city that they send everyone to and then throughout abu dhabi and then leaving the island so it's it's five tests in total there you go so i mean a lot of that is driven by the fact that you can uh, get a negative test and, and some of that is in the pre-symptomatic period so if you are pre-symptomatic or in the early stages of infection within the first five days or so you can often swab uh, negative at a higher rate, uh, even though you then may later test uh, positive uh, down the line. And I, I do want to like uh, talk a little bit about um, you know the the specific promotions that that we're focusing on. Mm-hmm. It is very interesting to see all these sports leagues and all the the measures that they're going through. And in MMA and pro wrestling, like these are the guinea pigs that we are are seeing, for lack of a better term. Now UFC, they have, you know, I I think that they have been pretty consistent in terms of their testing. And for this upcoming series of shows on in Abu Dhabi, I mean, it's pretty extensive here where mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm. they're sending people. There's four anchor cities based on where you live, where you have to go for 48 hours for your first test. You then arrive in Abu Dhabi. You have a second test at the airport. Then you can go to your hotel. You'll quarantine until your result. Then you take a third test, quarantine again until you get that third result. Then... There's a pre-event COVID test, you have your fight, and then after the fight, a fifth test before you can leave the island. I have to say that, like, unless you are just adamantly opposed to the idea of, of fights happening, like, I, I can't imagine, like, stricter measures than what UFC has in place for these upcoming shows. But I'm curious, uh, your assessment of what the UFC is putting all of their staff and fighters through. Yeah, I mean, it's great, right? I mean... You're talking about five swabs. Uh, Fight Island is basically like a, a almost impenetrable fortress type yeah. setup where you, you get in and you don't get out until they've formally cleared you. Um, and, you know, I think they're doing the best they can. I, I don't know what else you can really do, right? I mean, if you're doing five tests and you're clearing people when they come in, making sure they're clear throughout their stay and before they leave and no one else is getting in or out, then that is the best that you can do. They're all getting there at least two weeks before their fights, as I understand, right, or something. So... They're getting it in enough time that they're quarantined. They're getting their meals there. Everything is being delivered. And they should, even if, um, you know, even if you have a a negative swab that's a false, you should pick it up. One would think just based on statistics and time by then. So, you know, I commend them. They're they're, they're really, that is great. That is a a great model. If you're going to run fights uh, and you want to put on shows, uh, then that is uh, certainly one of the safest ways I can think to do it. Let's move on now to to the wrestling promotions, and um, you know I'm I'm unsure how closely maybe you've been following the the testing procedures of of any of the other companies, but uh, if we could perhaps start off with AEW, uh, we know that they've been doing uh, testing via uh, temperature check as well as uh, some form of rapid testing, as far as we know, um, each week that they're taping, and uh, they are conducting their shows in an outdoor arena, semi outdoor arena. Uh, but however, I think, uh, as we discussed on last night's dynamite review, um, you know, sometimes a clear lack of social distancing as well as face masks. Um, you know, what, what is your opinion about how they've handled all of it? Uh, I mean, you know, 
not as well as UFC, obviously, but I think the test is better than temperature. Temperature is, is a very outdated measure. Uh, you know, less than 50% of people who have the virus present with the temperature necessarily up front. And you have to understand, most people that present with the temperature are symptomatic. Those people are likely going to be weeded out anyway, right? If you're sick, you're probably not showing up to work if you work in AEW because, I mean, you wouldn't show up. That would be part of, hopefully, your, your own social responsibility and just the fact that you'd be caught at the door as being sick. So what you're really talking about is the asymptomatic person who has a temperature randomly that doesn't know it. I mean, that's pretty rare, right? Most of most times, those people, the asymptomatics, are not going to have a temperature. So I do think using that as your only gauge is, is difficult. Um, using the test is, is a good marker. I mean, they're using one test probably. So like I said, you can miss people, especially in that initial period. Uh, then, you know, you have the, the risk of them acquiring it. Being outdoors is going to be less things to touch, less uh, more wind and things to sort of move the respiratory particles uh, out of the way. But you do have people in the audience that don't have masks on, I think, which is the, perhaps the biggest risk, right, uh, where it seems unnecessary. I can understand you can't wrestle with a mask. I mean, we all get that. Uh, but why can't you sit in the audience with a mask on? It just seems um, that, that it would be an easy step to do that would help reduce the risk without really affecting anyone's enjoyment. I don't think anyone watching those shows is going to feel that they're not enjoying it just because audience member has a mask on. And you compound that as well with the travel. I mean, this is not a case where yeah. you're, you're, you're creating a bubble and everyone is there for the, this period of time. It's like we have people getting into airplanes, going to different parts of the country. And I think that's, that definitely has to be an, an added risk that that's thrown into this. And yeah, like I, I can't, I don't think you can give AEW a failing grade, but I think you can't, you can't say it's like if the UFC is the high standard, I think it falls somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that assessment. So WWE and, on the other hand, uh, sorry, wait. Yeah. Oh, I was about to just do what you're about to. Well, let's, let's discuss WWE who, uh, began testing just a couple of weeks back after they had been doing temperature checks and having, uh, talent staff go through uh, answering questionnaires uh, to get in and out. Now we weren't hearing positive cases, but they weren't testing. So it's kind of hard to hear of that. We had uh, one back in March, which turned out to be Kayla Braxton. And then a couple of weeks back, an unnamed developmental performer, which necessitated the start of COVID-19 testing. My first question, Alex, and I've had this one uh, for, for, for over a month now, is there a magic spray that can prevent the spread of COVID-19 within a gym? <laughs> I mean, it, not really. I mean, you can try to wipe down stuff, but, um, you know, no, you're not going to be perfect at it, right? It's going to be difficult uh, to prevent spread like that. Um, it, the virus can spread on respiratory droplets. So if you have one person using a gym by themselves and then you completely chlorhexidine wash the entire thing out and give it time, maybe 24 hours and have someone else, then, yeah, maybe the risk is close to zero. But otherwise, if you're having people in and out of a gym, you know, how vigilant are you going to be cleaning everything? It's difficult to surmise that you're going to be that accurate when people are sweating and presumably, uh, you know, you're going to get a lot of spitting and stuff like that happening, right? And, you know, once the, once the I guess, list of, um, you know, positives were uh, being publicly announced by the, you know, uh, people who are suffering from uh, the positives themselves, like, I want to get your opinion on how the WWE perhaps uh, reacted to it by, you know, doing implementing the testing, but then continuing to to do the shows. Like what I'm trying to get at is, was it safe to? Is it safe right now even for them to continue doing these shows? 
I mean, you know, their first approach, I think, of not testing and, and relying on temperature clearly wasn't adequate. I think we talked uh, and mentioned before, and I think a lot of people have mentioned that, uh, unfortunately, it was a situation that we could easily see developing into what happened. Uh, I'm glad that they're doing additional measures now. Uh, I haven't really watched any of the shows, but I've heard that they did have people with masks more and that they are uh, testing them, not just using temperature as a gauge. What happened exactly there, we don't know the full extent of. I mean, you, you guys would probably know better than me, but it sounds like there were any, you know, a, a number of people that were affected. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming most of those people were contact traced. Anyone who was in close contact with them were all removed and, and sort of quarantined for about two weeks. Uh, and then I guess everyone else, um, if they were not and they tested negative, and we don't know, maybe they tested them once or twice. And if they did test negative, then they only allowed them back on the show. Uh, and if those were the only people there and they were a little better, maybe it is a, a bit safer now. So without knowing exactly to what degree they, they sort of tested the performers now, uh, it's difficult to say how safe it is. If they went through the appropriate measures and they said, look, if you were in close contact or around anyone who tested positive, you're automatically done. And if not, we're going to test you, you know, once or twice to make sure you're not and then only let you in and then try and take these measures where, you know, people who can wear masks uh, do wear masks and minimize the, the sort of... Um, social distancing aspect as much as you can, then it's obviously going to be safer and that would be the best scenario. But without knowing all that information, it's difficult to tell. You know, as a healthcare worker, and this has been brought up, you know, from a lot of sports leagues as well, that they're not, or or at least they're discussing the fact that they they won't reveal names when people test positive. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you feel that there is, like when you are a company that is, bringing in all of these people, like what's the obligation from the promotions point of view in your mind when there is a positive test and, and that is under, under your, there is no commission. There is, it's pretty much, you are regulating yourselves here. Like what is the onus here on these companies to respect people's privacy when it comes to health, but also the fact that these are potential risks that we are sending back out into various parts of the country. It's not like we're self quarantining these people on our own. We're relying on the patient to take care of themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what the exact situation in the U S but here, um, there would be an onus on, uh, the company or whoever administered the test to contact the person. So for instance, when I swap someone who's positive, which happens, I will contact the person myself and inform them the test is positive. I will ask that person to then, uh, contact trace anyone they were in close contact with and urge those people to either quarantine for two weeks or get tested themselves. And I would tell that person to remain in self quarantine for two weeks. And, uh, at that point, we would also pass on the information to public health. We'll call and do a more detailed assessment than I can do. That, I think, would be the responsibility of the company. They should contact these people. They should make sure anyone they were in close contact with is tested and isolates themselves, and that this person uh, does remain in self-quarantine for two weeks. That would be the onus, um, and that would be what they should do. In terms of public revealing these names or public revealing, there is a uh, Health Information Protection Act, which... Uh, prevents uh, physicians and, and people from uh, revealing uh, people's personal health details. And I think that's uh, for the best. It's your personal health details. Some people that have the virus may not want it out there that they have it. And I, I don't think it's on the company's na- uh, sort of responsibility to publicly put out those names. And I think that's sort of irresponsible if they do that. Now, if they choose to talk to the people and the people want it out there and they choose to put it out themselves or the company puts it out themselves, that's one thing. But in terms of privacy, it's absolutely that person's uh, right to to refuse to have their uh, public health details uh, put out there. Do you think that like as someone that has followed, you know, this company as long as you have, like, has it 
have you reevaluated, you know, certain level of oversight? Um, because to me, as as much as this is a company that comes down to one person's decision making, I, I think like some of the carelessness, a lot of this, it's an indictment of their 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 medical direct their medical team as well that either have have not instituted enough safeguards or they've been overruled and it and it's kind of you know they they don't have that ability to provide the expertise that they're hired to to have like to me the fact that we just had the first WWE covid testing a couple of weeks ago this many months into it i think that's inexcusable for a company that you cannot cry uh financially that they could not provide this testing and that to me is the absolute bare minimum at this point that everyone should be testing, uh, be tested ahead of these shows where they're, they're traveling in and out of Florida every other week. Yeah. I mean, they should be tested and, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not one to criticize other physicians or, or anyone else, because I, I don't know what actually went on. You, you would think that a, a company like WWE clearly has physicians on staff that would help advise them. And then, you know, what the recommendations were and how they were taken uh, is anyone's guess. Uh, this is a con- this is a bit difficult. I-, I would caution though that that for any physician to know, I I get questions all the time from physicians that are family doctors or people that just don't see coronavirus patients or know much about it that don't have the knowledge you would think. Just because you are a physician doesn't mean you have knowledge on this issue. It is you know going to be the physicians in 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 fields like infectious disease, um, you know possibly internal medicine, uh, critical care medicine, people that really do see this like emergency medicine, people that really do see this virus and, and have an idea of of what's going on with it on a daily basis that are, are going to be best equipped, I think, to help, as well as, uh, you know, public health people that are involved in epidemiology and public health studies. So I don't know the breadth of, of who they involved in this, but, um, you know, I would hope that going forward that they, they do involve uh, sort of the right medical personnel to help advise them and, and take those recommendations seriously. Uh, I mean, it, it's clear that the testing would have helped. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear that that being putting certain safeguards in would help. And, you know, looking to the future, I, it, I hope that's what they're doing. And I assume that they are. So, so let's hope that things are better from here on out. Getting back to just maybe more of a general discussion about, uh, you know, COVID-19, um, a lot of concern about a second wave in Canada. How, at this point, how likely do you think that is to happen? And do you think that the lockdown that we may see again will be as severe as the first time? So I think we might see a second wave for sure uh, coming up. You know, a lot of people are, are targeting September, October. Uh, and what could lead to a second wave is multifactorial. The opening of schools will clearly be something like in Israel that could have an effect. Uh, opening borders is probably the big one. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the second wave is thought to be the South American wave. And we're seeing that now mm-hmm. where because initially we didn't we know based on Brazil's numbers that they weren't infected at the same rate. And now we're starting to see it. There's parts of Asia. If you look at India, the same thing based on the population size, uh, we knew that there was a spike coming later. So as that, what happens is you clear the virus here in, in the Toronto or, or the Ontario area, rates start to rise in that part of the world. And that those people bring it back in. And that's kind of what happens. And that's what leads to the second wave often is uh, migration of, of people from areas that have still not cleared the virus and still have active loads. Uh, perhaps the strain that they bring back is is slightly different. You don't know. Uh, and then by that time, maybe people's immunity, if there is partial immunity for about three months, has started to wane a little bit. We're less uh, concerned with social distancing. So we've opened up everything and it starts to spread. And it could be worse in terms of how many people get it. Now, you know, 
if you had it once, will it be worse the second time? Probably not. You probably have at least partial immunity. So for that individual, probably the first infection will be symptomatically the worst. But you could get rapid rises because of that if you start to get cases and you're less, con, you know, less aggressive about your social distancing measures. So it's absolutely something to keep an eye on uh, towards the end of the year as to what happens. And uh, a lot of that will dictate what occurs. Now, you know, something like SARS, that didn't happen. It, it never really came back. But influenza uh, still comes back every year. So we're just going to have to see how it plays out. But there's absolutely concern, I think, from everybody, uh, including even in our hospitals, where we started to ease off a little bit, that we could be ramping back up uh, come September, October. Have you seen, uh, you know, any perhaps standard lasting effects among, you know, your patients who have recovered? Yeah, so... Um, a lot of times the condition that uh, I, we, they develop while in the ICU is something called ARDS, uh, which is a medical condition where you get the scarring of your lungs. And there's some, uh, a lot of work was done in this in Toronto, actually, by one of my colleagues, Margaret Heritage, that looked at what happened to ARDS survivors. So if you kind of lump in coronavirus similar to, because the end result is creating an ARDS-like picture, they have a lot of problems. And the main reasons are when you're really sick with coronavirus. So if you're really sick in an ICU, uh, you have a ventilator for a long time. Oftentimes we have to paralyze you so we can take over your breathing and you're not moving your muscles. And these people are quite debilitated when they do recover. So now that we're starting to see people recover and get out of the ICU, they're very weak. They don't have the same lung capacity. They don't have the same ability to walk and they basically have to retrain themselves. So they're quite debilitated uh, because of this. Now, the milder cases, the ones that never make it into the hospital or maybe make it into the hospital but go home very quickly, what happens to those people? We don't know. Uh, a lot of those people I've seen, and they seem to be just fine now, uh, the one thing that is taking a long time to recover is their sense of smell and taste. Uh, that takes a bit longer, it seems, and some people are still not having that return, even though they're weeks out. But those people seem to recover a bit better. But if you are sick enough to end up in the ICU on a ventilator uh, and you develop ARDS or you are paralyzed, it'll be a long, long road to recovery. And, and you may never uh, fully regain all of that uh, sort of strength and, and lung function down the line, unfortunately. I, and I imagine, obviously, um, you know, the more severe cases are going to be those at, you know, uh, at an older age and those with, you know, higher risk. But um, can you speak to perhaps, you know, any any of the cases you may have seen in perhaps younger people and perhaps the, you know, the idea that that that's still out there that, Younger people are immune to all this. Younger people are definitely not immune to this. I mean, the youngest person we've had die from this virus was in their 20s. Um, a lot of times, the people that are on the ventilators, the people that we're looking after, are not the people that you think are 70, 80, because a lot of those people don't end up on ventilators, either because they we know that the mortality is so high or they choose not to be on a ventilator. Uh, the ones that end up on the ventilators are typically in their 50s. Those are the majority of what we see are, are sort of early 50s, and they're the ones who have the long-term effects and you know, some survive and are quite debilitated and, and a lot don't survive. Um, we are seeing younger people that have it. We had a 24-year-old we sent down to Toronto General Hospital for ECMO. Like we had a t someone in their 20s who died. Um, we had uh, somebody who a sister and brother contracted and one passed away uh, in his 30s, unfortunately. So there are numerous people that are young who have passed away. Obviously, the fatality ratio or the percentage is going to be less. Uh, than it would be for somebody who's older and sick. But do not think that if you are young and get this, that everybody is immune. Uh, because there are, not just from our hospital, but there are reports all over the place of, of people that are younger who uh, have unfortunately gotten quite sick from this. When it comes to non-COVID patients that, that you and your staff are treating, have you seen any kind of a decline over these months where people might be more uh, resistant to going to a hospital given the, the, the current climate and you've seen those numbers go down? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it was concerning. I think I mentioned it uh, perhaps on this podcast last time that, you know, if you are sick, please come to the hospital because there's a certain fear out there of people that they think they're going to get coronavirus from the hospital. So they stay home with very serious medical conditions when they probably should seek out medical care. And we saw that. We saw huge drops actually in our number of patients who did not have COVID. And you think, you know, with disease sort of otherwise being the same, why would that happen? And now we're starting to see the, the caseload pick up again. We saw some people present very late in illness where they were uh, maybe would have been better to have come in earlier. Um, we've closed a lot of surgeries uh, and now we're starting to reopen, but not every surgery is elective. So yeah, maybe hips and knees uh, were canceled, but you also have people that have uh, malignancies that were getting surgeries delayed. So a lot of that has led to less of a volume in the hospital, um, both from us canceling things and from people staying away. But I do want to make that point very clear that uh, if you are sick, please come to the hospital. Your risk of contracting coronavirus in the hospital and getting sick from that is far, far, far less than it is if you stay home with a serious medical illness. And and on sort of a similar note, you know, I, I wanted to perhaps get you to your, your thoughts on maybe, you know, the dangers of overreaction and maybe, you know, being too cautious about certain things. Like, and obviously we're, we're in a situation where I think we're, we're having to deal with the opposite, but my, my mom's a bit of a hypochondriac and she, you know, like I, she might be ta- like she, she might be the type who who's taken this almost like a little too seriously to the point where she even has to be cautious like around the people that she's living with inside the same house. So uh, if if you don't mind, yeah, if you have any thoughts on that, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we see people that will have face shields and goggles and a hazmat suit uh, trying to walk around or N95s. N95s that very tight mask. You do not need an N95 for this mess. So if you're walking around with an N95, it is it is not necessary. Uh, a simple face covering will do. It's a respiratory disease. Um, in general, you know, if you're around the same people in your house, attempting to socially distance from somebody within your same house is very difficult. We tend to think of it like a pod. We assume that if somebody has it there, uh, it's going to be very difficult just based on everything that happens to keep that away from everybody. So in general, you know, don't be overly concerned if you decide to go outside for this for a walk. It's not how you're getting the disease. People are not contracting this just being outside uh, walking or or even being, you know, in the same area where somebody might be uh, six feet or so away from you. Uh, you're getting it mainly through the spread of uh, respiratory droplets, mainly indoors is the majority of how this occurs. Uh, if you do things like make sure you wash your hands and try to avoid uh, touching your face or eyes with your hands, uh, maybe carry a little bit of sanitizer to make sure that you do this if you're if you don't have access to soap and water as often. You're going to prevent a large degree of spread of this. When you look at how it's spread, this it is not being spread that way. I, I know some people are very concerned, and I've talked to people who don't leave their house, and I don't think that's good for your well-being either. And in fact, just you know, sticking around your house all day and having things come in and out is not going to reduce your risk uh, either. Um, I think you know if you can be outdoors and you're doing it responsibly, uh, that's going to help uh, reduce your risk uh, of contracting it the same as it would if you stayed indoors. Of the, you know, the interactions you've had and things that you have read, is the resistance to mask wearing, is that something that, is it still getting, is that a very difficult message that some are, are not finding? Or is this something where the dissenters, it's an amplified voice and it represents a, a relatively low percentage of people out there because I've been astounded by just the, uh, that this has become some kind of political symbol, um, when it shouldn't be, but is, is that a case of maybe just putting too much of a spotlight on the dissenting few? I like to think it is. I think the biggest misconception people have about masks is people will say, Oh, it's my right. I'm only harming myself. Uh, you know, why do I 
need to wear a mask. And I mean, you can make that argument for things like a seatbelt or for smoking, where, where maybe you're just harming yourself. Even smoking, you can have secondhand smoke. But the point here of a mask isn't necessarily just to protect yourself, right? Uh, I think people really have to understand the point is to protect others as well. If you're sick and have the virus, if you put the mask on, you're going to reduce the risk that you're transmitting that virus. And whether or not you particularly care if you get the virus, I'm sure most people out there don't want to be giving that virus to others, especially uh, people that are perhaps unable to fight the virus, the elderly, people that have immune conditions, people that have uh, medical problems that prevent them from, even if there's a vaccine down the road, getting the vaccine. So the, the fact is, it's a socially responsible thing for everyone to do this, not just to protect yourself and whether you care about yourself, protect those around you. Um, so I think a lot of people are perhaps causing a lot of noise over this that don't represent the the large majority, at least in, in our area where we live. I haven't seen that be as big an issue as as you read about. Um, even on the TTC, for instance, I've had friends say, you know, they're, they're glad everyone's wearing this on public transit. It's our public transit system, that people are wearing masks and by and large are adhering to it. I had a, a friend that went to the mall because they had to pick up some baby supplies and said the same thing. So I do think even when I'm around that I, people are generally following this. Um, I think if you're one of the people that's taken the stance that it's your body and you have a civil sort of right not to wear a mask, that you really need to pause and consider those around you and think whether your responsibility is only to look inward or not. It's like staying home you when you're sick. It's like it's like there. Yeah. It's just common courtesy. It's like I think there was a bygone era where you know you tough it out and you go to work sick. Today you're going to be the pariah in your office if you're showing up with 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 any kind of uh, symptoms, especially now, but even, even prior to uh, COVID-19, like it's just, it's common courtesy that you're sick. You don't want to infect others. I think this is a pretty simple principle to grasp. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, we had the same thing in the hospital, like for years when I was a resident or training, you know, you you came to work if you were sick, right? Like you came and you did your 30 hour shift or whatever it was. But nowadays nobody does that. If you're, if you're sick, you go home, you even think you might be sick. uh, You, you stay home or get swabbed in our case. So uh, I think it's changing. I think it's changing for the better that everybody uh, doesn't just look at themselves back then. It was all about, you know, oh, you know, I can get through this. I'll be tough enough to do this. That's not what this is about, right? You're not tough. If you, uh, think you're fighting through this or not wearing a mask and end up infecting five other people. You, you just caused harm to people for no real good reason. You mentioned earlier about, you know, perhaps um, seeing some success in, in, in treatment, at least, you know, at present. Uh, but, you know, on the topic of a vaccine, realistically, how far do you think we are away from that? And do you know of any countries that are perhaps successfully running trials right now? Well, there's a number of trials being run. Um, you know, I have a friend who's an immunologist who's heavily involved in this that I spoke to. And, you know, in terms of, of uh, you have to understand for vaccines to come to market, uh, generally the fastest we've seen, I think, is about five years. Um, we're not likely to see a vaccine within a year, if that's what everybody thinks that's going to be fully available, ready to go totally well. I think you do have to assume that the timeline is more years. Hopefully it's not five years, but certainly in the immediacy, when we looked at all this recent study, there's nothing that looks like it's going to be ready within a year or probably even a year and a half. So we're probably looking at a timeline, I thought, from when the virus first hit of about closer to three years. And I think I've seen nothing that would deviate from that being sort of when we're looking at a, a, a well-versed vaccine being available. All right. Well, um, Alex, I want to thank you very much for uh, taking as much time as you have today to uh, chat with us and answer a lot of our questions, probably many that you're answering on a daily basis. So I appreciate your uh, your patience with us uh, as well. You're doing a, a great service. I know there's a lot of listeners um, that very much value your uh, your opinions and insights into all of this, because uh, by 
by the week, we have so many questions. So I really appreciate having an expert such as yourself to come on, take some time to uh, answer all of these questions for us. Sure. No, I'm very happy to do so. Um, you know, if you have any questions and you want to send them to John or Way or on the forum, I'm, I'm happy to try and answer when I can. Uh, you know, I think it's it's a fight that we're all in together. And uh, at least here, I think, you know, we're better now than we were uh, last time we spoke. So hopefully that trend continues. And, and that thread on the forum for people, uh, if they wanted to, uh, you know, uh, communicate with, with Alex or just really raise maybe your own experiences with it, uh, is uh, at forum.postwrestling.com. And it is the uh, very cleverly named Corona Mania thread, which is up there. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I echo John's uh, statements. I mean, honestly, I feel like, you know, he, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm somebody who I consider, you know, to, to keep up with this, like, it pretty pretty closely, but I, I I still learn like a great deal just through these you know forty five minutes. So thank you so much, Alex, for your time. No problem, my pleasure. Thanks again for doing this for all your, your listeners. It's a great public service, I think. Yes, uh, you can also follow him, Doctor Alex Patel, P A T E L, on Twitter. And this is a free podcast, so if you know anyone that lives in Florida or Texas, please send them the show and uh, signed Doctor Alex Patel. Uh, so thanks to everybody uh, for tuning into this show. Way and I will be back uh, Friday night for Rewind a Smackdown Live. And that's it for us. Thank you for listening.